0: I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness, and your longevity. Today, we have the incredible Genevieve Whitson gracing our podcast. Genevieve had a remarkable career that saw her compete at top level in multiple disciplines. Genevieve represented New Zealand in World Cups and World Championships across road racing, cyclocross, and mountain bike. Mathieu Vanderpoel before Mathieu Vanderpoel existed. Since she's retired, she's taken her unique learnings and now helps to shortcut the road to success for other athletes. Her unique outlook and training and motivation it's inspired countless athletes to reach their full potential. Today, we have the privilege of tapping into her wealth of knowledge and uncovering some invaluable training tips. We'll look at her rise to success, the challenges she faced along the way, and the invaluable lessons she's learned from those experiences. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today.
1: I was taken out of the whole race season because I got glandular fever, and my Kissing boyfriend disease. at the time, yes.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then there was this amazing bright pink bike and it was just, it was just waiting for me and um, yeah and like the first thing I did was I pushed it up to the top of our driveway and we lived down like a a valley and so it was like a maybe one kilometre descent to the house and I just tried to floor it as fast as I could down and obviously crashed and rolled over and tears and all that kind of stuff but yeah that was how it all started. You know back in like 2008 through to like 2013, I, I, I have to say, I, I saw some, some terrible things. I mean, one team I, I rode for in 2012, it was shut down by the French Cycling Federation at the end of the year because there were so many complaints.
0: Genevieve, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's very cool to be here.
0: I believe at one point in your life, you were a rickshaw driver. I want to start there. Yes. It's an unlikely place to start, <laughs> but I was also a rickshaw driver for a while. So I feel like a connected bond to you instantly.
1: Oh my goodness. I, this is this is super exciting. Um, can, I, I'm very curious. Where were you rickshawing? Was it Edinburgh? Was it London?
0: No, Dublin. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. Okay. D- it's, Dub- Dublin's quite hilly, isn't it?
0: Uh, there's parts that are hilly, and there's a lot of quite heavy American tourists like to come over <laughs> and uh, kind of rediscover their Irish heritage. So that can make rickshaw challenging.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. Oh man, I, this is great. You're it's, it's like an instant bond, rickshaw family. <laughs> it's a, it's a global community of rickshaws. Wow, that's really cool actually, because I, 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 I meet very few people beyond my group of friends in Edinburgh who rickshaw and, um, yeah, most people you have to explain like what it is and and they can't fathom it. But, yeah, I did that for five years while I was in Edinburgh and I did that to try and help support my cycling career Um, because when I was bike racing, there were very few women actually on paid contracts and even if they were on paid contracts, the, the pay was just dismal. It was unless you were kind of in that top 1%.
0: When you're talking dismal, how bad's dismal?
1: Uh, I had as bad as one year as just prize money, Oof. and I um, I got into quite a lot of debt, and that's why rickshoring became my kind of saving grace. And what was really funny was that you people jump in your rickshaw and they're like, Oh, we feel so sorry for you, you know, like this is so rough, you have to do this. And I, I loved it, <laughs> I got so fit, the money was great. I mean, there was no it was up to you how much you made and if you could chat to people and if you had a little bit of sales background and you were fit, you could make really good money. And it was it was fun. It was really, really fun.
0: I feel it could be slightly different as a girl and a guy though. You're better positioned <laughs> for tips as a girl. I'm better positioned for people swinging punches at me as a guy.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I can't lie on that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I did it in Edinburgh for, um, there was, for every 50 guys, there were about two or three women and yeah, like majority of, of people who signed up to Rickshaw by the end of the six months, there was only like one or two left, but yeah, women who Rickshaw generally did quite well, um, because it was a bit of a novelty and obviously you've got, you know, stag dues, everyone's drunk, you know, sometimes I had to, Put a few guys in their place about what was appropriate and not appropriate on a rickshaw, and um, <laughs> and you know, and obviously you see the darker side of, of town as well. And some of the places that we took people to on rickshaws are not the sort of place that you would uh, you would go during the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it is quite instructive, though, that you'll basically ride anything that has wheels, where you've mountain bike, cyclocross bike, road bike, and rickshaws.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just got so fit. Um, I don't know if you found that when you were rickshawing, but my ability to climb uphill went through the roof. The only thing that suffered was my sprinting. But yeah, like the stamina and the fitness, and I also was, I got pretty skinny while I was rickshawing as well.
0: Where did this love for two wheels come from? Can you remember your earliest, like even as I'm asking the question, I'm casting my mind back to my earliest memories on it. I know my dad we were kind of middle to low income family and my dad was in the army and after work for some extra cash, he used to fix bikes and he'd spray them all this exact same sort of weird Coventry City blue color (sighs) and sell them. But it was like a conveyor belt. And I got a chance to work in the modern day equivalent of a sweatshop where I'd be working for my dad (laughs) for free all day trying to use my tiny little fingers to get into tiny little holes to fix the bike, and I suppose that was my first experience of cycling. And from there, it's always just felt something so natural to me being on bikes, being around bikes. Can you remember your earliest memories of
1: it? Yeah, yeah, I can. And um, thank you for sharing that. By the way, that was it's, I, I like hearing other people's connection. You know, the first time they got on a bike because it is a special moment. Mine was probably when I was about maybe five years old and I remember it was my birthday and I woke up in the morning and there was a piece of pink ribbon that I just had to keep on following and following out of my bedroom, (laughs) down the staircase, past the living room, into the kitchen, out onto the veranda and then there was this amazing bright pink bike and it was just just waiting for me. And um, yeah, and like the first thing I did was I grew up on a sheep farm. I pushed it up to the top of our driveway and we lived down like a, in a valley. And so it was like a, probably a good maybe one kilometer descent to the house. And I just I tried to floor it as fast as I could down and obviously crashed and rolled over and tears and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that was how it all started.
0: <laughs> Is it a usage used by colors of bikes? I Factor <laughs> kindly come on and sponsored the podcast. And as part of that, they were sending out some bikes and I'm, you know, chatting to my, my like guy friends and they're all like oh you know what group set is it what wheels do you get to get to 45 black ink wheels and I'm like yeah and then I'm chatting to my girlfriend and she's like did they tell you what color it is I was like <laughs> oh no, I shouldn't even ask what color it is I don't <laughs> care what color it is
1: <laughs> yeah it does it's funny actually because, um, it does seem to be more like yeah I definitely have got more female friends who are interested in the color of their bike than my male friends but um Maybe as a kid, because I, I, I was obsessed with pink. I was like, pink is just amazing and like everything I wore was pink. You know, I had pink socks, pink t shirts, pink shorts, pink dresses. Um but yeah, I grew out of that pretty quickly. So yeah, like when I when I got into racing I was just like, I just want a fast bike. You know, I don't care what color it is, I just want it to be fast.
0: I'm right into the meat of the season at the moment. I finished the Ross, that's in my rear view mirror now, and I was moving super well. I was very competitive despite my protracted absence from that level of racing. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap that I see many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus or aim and meeting up with friends and having coffee simply because the good weather has arrived. I'm continuing to use my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way through to my target events. I can't wait for the Rift and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be continuing my partnership with Wattbike. The Wattbike Adam, it's in my recording studio right beside the new desk. And if I have an error between interviews, I jump on, it removes all the friction points. I've no more 10 minutes set up, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, no more connection issues. It just works every single time. The Atom's perfect for its swift racing too. I have the big TV set up here, and I love those crisp gear changes. It has 1% power accuracy and a max gradient capability of 25%, even if my legs don't have a 25% max gradient capability. <laughs> even when I'm over there riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding the custom gearing setup. If you get a Watt bike, definitely play around with that. It's so suitable for those really hilly Watopia stages. If you're looking for an indoor bike trainer, I couldn't recommend this any higher. It's the very last indoor bike trainer that you're ever going to need. Absolutely phenomenal. If you head on over to whatbike.com and you use the code ROADMAN10 at checkout, you're now going to get 10% off the What Bike Adam. So that's ROADMAN10 at checkout and you're going to get 10% off the What Bike Adam. All the details for that offer are in today's show notes. When you started taking it seriously, what was the the kind of impetus to balance all these different disciplines? Because you see most people and they're on a track and they see the road, mountain bike, cyclocross as kind of parallel tracks. Definitely five, ten years ago, that was more so the case. We're seeing crossover now with, you know, Pitcock. It's hard to even put him in a bracket because he's mountain bike, Olympic champion, he's cyclocross world champion. And Vanderpoel and Wout as well. So, but that wasn't very common, like up until two, three years ago. What was your sort of motivation for that multidisciplinary?
1: It sort of happened as a natural progression. So, it wasn't really intentional. But when I moved to the UK and um, I got into road racing, uh, I was associated with a, a club in, in Swindon. And Swindon's like a quite a small, I don't know if you've heard of Swindon, but it's like a small town, not too far from Oxford where I was based at the time. And a guy that I knew there was just like, hey, I I see you love road racing and you've done mountain biking, you know, like, have you ever thought about cyclocross? And I just... I just can't, I find it hard to say no. I'm like, oh, that sounds really exciting. And and I was like, oh, it sounds like a combination of of like, you know, fitness and, you know, and, and having some mountain bike skills. I was like, oh, this could be really fun. And I literally just couldn't help myself. I did one race and was just like, I became obsessed and addicted. And the next thing I was looking at World Cups and I was like, what are these top women doing? And it just kind of escalated from there. And then I, I had the predicament you're exactly talking about about I was like, Well, how am I gonna balance this out with road racing? And at the time I was actually self-coaching as well, so it was even more of a more of a challenge. But I decided that I would try and have two peaks in a year, which I'd done some research on and People said it was possible. And we just, I kind of just stumbled my way for a period of time until I got another coach.
0: How many years ago did you retire?
1: I stopped racing in a 2017, but I suppose I finally accepted it was over in 2018.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I know I was racing 2012. I was in France, 2013, Canada, or US. I kind of remember the timelines are hazy, but we've had this proliferation of cycling coaching access to information and knowledge now and in the last few years but that wasn't really the case in especially 2010 around that time or anything predating that we were just having those amazing books like I've had Joe Friel on the podcast where it's training Bible <laughs> Kogan and Alan training and racing with a power meter was coming out around then and we were just getting access to that but cycling Coaching and what to do was a little bit of a dark art for one discipline, never mind trying to blend two or three different disciplines together. How did you self coach, or was there a point where you're like, self coaching is limited? I'm gonna have to move to an established culture.
1: Yeah, I'm um, totally agree with you by that, by the way, on that. And um, I also did read the Joe Frail book, um, um, uh, An so Old Boyfriend. Good. It's amazing, and actually, um. Yeah, basically, what happened was um, in 2004, um, so this is going a long way back, I was taken out of the whole race season because I got glandular fever. And my Kissing boyfriend disease. at the time, yes, <laughs> 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 I think we'll leave that right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, um, yeah, my boyfriend at the time, who was a very, um, very top level mountain biker, he said, Look, I coached myself to a very high level and he said, I think you can too. You need to read this book. And I read the book and I was like, oh my God, he's right. Like this isn't rocket science, but you just need to understand a little bit about, you know, training zones and how to put the equation together. And then with his guidance, we kind of got going again. And then basically what happened was I started to get some good results and I was starting to you know, starting to get under consideration for like the National Squad and things like that. And I just kept on like picking people's brains and asking people and I'm very intuitive with how I work with my body. So it's all done on feelings. Um, I'm not really kind of like, you know, just because you've written a program and you've told yourself you're gonna follow it, I don't really run like that. I'm like, well how are you feeling today? But I did reach a point where I went in and got some lab tests done and the guy who did the testing was like, Yes, you're going well. And it's great you've got this far self-coaching, but he said, in order to go further, you need like proper scientific help. And that was the realization that I was going to have to get another coach.
0: I think the problem with self-coaching is it becomes this long drawn out game of trial and error, especially in those years totally. when you didn't have access to this peer-reviewed data where I'd do the same because I was a student and I you know, spent seven years in university, had like less than zero money. I was in debt but I had learned how to research quite effectively through university. So I was like, I can figure this out. Well, and you can figure it out, but your timeline is not unlimited when you're an athlete and you spend six months going down this like road and you think, okay, this is maybe a road that's going somewhere and then you get to the end of it and it's a dead end. It's an alley and there's nothing positive to be there, only the experience. And then you're like, okay. So that didn't work. That's like a half a season gone. Now I yeah. know what not to do next year. And it just <laughs> that game of trial and error is—it's frustrating.
1: Oh, hugely. And the reason that progress for me was so slow for so many years was, I—I I started off with an amazing coach. Then I got sick, and I decided to try somebody else when I came back. Obviously, I coached myself for a period of time, but I literally—I think before I finally got the perfect coach. And obviously, there was that period of me coaching myself. I think I went through like seven coaches. It was like dating gone wrong, you know, like <laughs> this isn't working. Oh, my God, that one hasn't gone right.
0: And the breakup is horrible as well.
1: Oh, yeah, that's the thing. It hurts so much, especially if you've connected with the coach in some ways, but the, the training just isn't working. And, um, yeah, it's. It, it 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 can really wear you down and again like i you know like it took me 10 years to get a bike sponsor because progress was so slow and i'm convinced that if i had the knowledge and the tools that i had in my last 2 years i reckon i could have gone you know a little bit further but i just as you said like i just didn't have the resources early on and yeah time because time got wasted
0: And the game has slightly changed now because you have YouTube channels out there, like I've had Dylan Johnson on the podcast, you've GCN. So people almost have access to too much information now and they're sieving through it and going, oh, which parts of this are applicable to me? But when I first started moving into my first year working with a coach, I remember him saying to me like, you know, what are you eating on a training spin? And I was like, no, I don't eat on training spins. And he's like, what? (laughs) But I didn't know. Like, it's so obvious now in the era of, yeah, we're doing 120 grams of carbs per hour. We're taking X amounts of fluid in per hour. It's so obvious because there's so much information about that. But I had a theory at the time, in hindsight, quite a flawed theory, that if I didn't eat in training when I started eating in races, I'd be like supercharged. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Is that like the whole theory of like train on a bike that's like 20 kgs so that when you get on your like 7 kg bike? It's that gonna... same theory. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really good. That's, I tried that I like one as well.
0: That. I used to do heel reps with a backpack on.
1: Yeah. Well, I used to do heel reps with, um, I used to tie weights around my ankles. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this isn't like I did on the bunch ride right, because people think you're real weird. But um, yeah, like you, I, I was determined to uh, to get that edge. So Yeah try some obscure things.
0: Yeah, but looking back, and uh, obviously with the podcast, I get to chat with amazing minds now. And one of them I had on was Michael Hutchinson, who is an aerodynamic expert. You know, he's worked with some of the fastest riders in the world and national federations. One of the crazy experiments I had back in the day was I used to go to the top of my local hill in my time trial position with my time trial helmet on. And I would just get a friend to push me, just one push, and I would stay in that position all the way down the hill. And I'd get to the bottom of the hill, and I'd mark where I stopped rolling in chalk. And then I'd get another time trial helmet, which my friend owned. I'd put that on at the top, get the same push, go down the hill, mark it in chalk. And he said, that's actually a really effective way to test aerodynamics. I was like, I knew I stumbled onto some gold and all that stupidity. (laughs) Our sponsor today is Caldera Lab. As road men, we're out in all sorts of weather. And I have to say, I've really started to notice the effects of that exposure. I'm just spending too much time in the elements and the sun, the wind and the rain, and it's taking an effect. More fine lines, wrinkles and visible signs of aging. When I look into the mirror some days, it's like my dad's face is looking back at me. Over the past six months or so, I've been looking to optimise all aspects of my health, and I've really focused on finding a solution to this exposure. I'm obviously not going to stop riding my bike. The culmination of my research is being Caldera Lab, I started using this product as a customer because of the depth of clinical trial data showing that this stuff really works. And I have to say, I chased them super hard to get these guys on board as a show sponsor. So how it works is they have three products and you use them in the morning and then again in the evening. The first one is the Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser that uses gentle plant-based cleansing, leaving your skin feeling exceptionally refreshed. The second one is the base layer, and this is a nutrient-dense moisturizer which hydrates your skin. And the third one is called the Goat, and this is a serum which helps your skin to look younger, tighter, and smoother. The combination of these three makes up your morning and evening routines. We have an exclusive offer for our audience, so you can try this for yourself, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can get 20% off with our code, which is simply Roadman. Head on over to calderalab.com forward slash roadman and use that discount code to unlock your youthful glow and be ready for the summer. I'm going to leave that discount code and link to Caldera in today's show notes. I've only started riding mountain bike really this year and it's been mind-blowing and humbling like i'm still racing on the road like my my level's not super high but i'm still cat one and able to mix it okay in cat one races but when i go into mountain bike like there's guys and girls who are cat three cat four riders on the road and they're absolutely annihilating me on the mountain bike i'm like this is a totally different sport i almost can't get my power down on it which came first for you was it mountain biking or road
1: yeah, so I started on the mountain bike, and then yeah, when uh, a few things kind of went a bit pear-shaped, I decided to diversify into the road. But yeah, it was it was really difficult.
0: I think that's an easier transition to make from mountain bike to road than road to mountain bike.
1: I think you're right because I think ultimately to be a really good mountain bike, you have to have incredible strength because so much is like basically like a time trial. Um, you know, it's just you, the bike. You can't suck on the back of someone's wheel, or you know, just get by on clever tactics if you're not that fit. But what I found difficult was going from mountain biking, where it was just all about you, to trying to navigate a peloton and understand all the, I suppose, unspoken <laughs> rules of the peloton and and just, and just the tactical nature of it, um, which I don't think, mountain biking is still tactical, but it's not the same degree of tacticalness. Um, you know, like you can you can turn up to a, a road race and you might not be the fastest, the fittest, but if you're really clever, you might surprise everyone.
0: Yeah, it's like chess on wheels. And I think when you've grown yeah. up watching it it's, uh, and participating in it, it seems kind of obvious, but it's only when somebody new comes in and they're trying to articulate and unpack their experience of a road race. They're like, well, why did this happen? And you're like, oh, that's actually not so obvious if you're outside looking in, whereas... You know, if you're it's someone who's an aficionado of the sport, you're like, okay, well, that's obvious why it's unfolding like this. But in, increasingly in World Tour Cycling, I watch some of the races, and it's like, it's the more you know, the less you know. Some of the tactics these days are absolutely bizarre. Like, you're seeing <sighs> Pogacar attacking from, like, 80k <laughs> out on his own and stuff, and not waiting for the, you know, traditional final in the races to make his move. And it's getting more and more bizarre, and... More and more difficult, I'd say, to make that transition from something like mountain bike into road from a tactical perspective.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think um, I'll, I think quite a lot of people try it, but I'd say a smaller percentage are are maybe highly successful at it. And I think too, some of it is physiological, like the, the design of your body. Like some people fly on a road bike, and then nowhere to be seen on a mountain bike and vice versa. Um, Some people's bodies, I think, are just better suited to one particular type of cycling.
0: Was the hierarchy difficult for you to, and by hierarchy, I mean hierarchy within a team, was that difficult to put your head around and understand why there's these different roles within the team? I know when I went out to France racing there, a term I heard over and over again was Le Métier, and Le Métier kind of translates to the apprenticeship. And within that apprenticeship, you've this understanding that, okay, I'm going to spend a certain amount of time on the bottom rung of the ladder, and then I'll graduate slightly to the next rung of the ladder. And each rung of the ladder has different roles and responsibilities, like the bottom rung of the ladder might be collecting guys' raincoats and bringing them back to the car. Whereas the next rung up, you might get it right on the front a bit and you know control for a sprinter for the day. And then as you step up to eventually that team leader spot, if you ever get there, that whole process would be kind of collectively le métier. But coming in from a different sport and not being plugged into that ecosystem, is that difficult to understand and appreciate?
1: I think a little bit. I was lucky that um, a lot of the women I was racing with on the mountain bike were also racing road. And so I got a lot of tips from them and I didn't go into it super naive in terms of, oh, just it's all about me on the road. Um, I did my first international road season guest riding on a team in the usa and we did well i felt like we we're doing a criterium every every day over there and yeah it was brutal um and like
0: I that soldier
1: oh yeah and i was their workhorse you know like when i approached them i basically just said let me be your workhorse so i went into it knowing that i was just gonna be like driving myself into the ground day after day uh, and that was hard actually because i mean obviously you want to do a good job for your team and you want to help Every now and then I saw potential for me to maybe like, you know, maybe I could go for the win or maybe I could try and get myself in a break, but you've got clear instructions from your team manager that you're going to get so-and-so teammate in the break. And um, But eventually, after a good, uh, you know, maybe I think I had like a couple of good months of races, I started to get more opportunities because I'd shown to be, I suppose, supportive. Um, But it's a very, it can be a hard mentality to get round, but it's okay, so... I'm going to finish maybe nowhere in this race and it doesn't matter but you know your teammate's going to get on the podium and that counts and I think that can be hard for the ego to get over when you've come from another sport that doesn't operate quite
0: like that you have them clear moments then where the domestique is obviously stronger than the team leader and I think the most striking or poignant to those I remember watching it was on La de Belfi when Froome was Wiggins's domestique, and I think it was 2012 or 2013 and he just yeah, rolled clean off the wheel in the final <laughs> And there's a brilliant documentary, if you haven't seen it, on uh, YouTube called A Year in Yellow of Bradley Wiggins. And they have the footage from inside the team car from that moment. And I think it's Sean Yates who's the director for Team Sky. I could be wrong. And he's in the earpiece to free me and he's like, Chris, I hope you have permission from Bradley for this attack. And I was <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a brilliant changing of the guards moment.
1: Yeah. And look, that does happen. And I think a really good team manager and also a team that's got riders who are mature and and understand that sometimes the way, pe- you know, that's been planned, how a race is going to play out with people's positions, whether you're a domestic or you're the lead rider or you're, you know, the support person for the sprint. I think in a really good team, you can you can go in and you can make adjustments if need be without tearing the team to pieces. But I think it's when things start happening and they're not communicated amongst the team that, you know, that's when the problems can really unfold. I've been in a team where it was managed well and I've been in other teams where it wasn't managed well. Uh, I remember going to, one year we raced, I was on a a team we went over and did the um, women's tour of Norway and, um, like, that's a climber's tour. It's like, I think each stage it was like, you know, two and a half thousand metres of climbing. And um, my team manager he was planning the calendar for the year and we'd all specifically told him the race we wanted to do. But everyone in the team had, had based that around, you know, their strengths and weaknesses. And we were told, obviously he has final say, but he'll take this into account. And we got, to, he, he presented the calendar and he, I said to him, why am I not competing in the women's tour of Norway? And he said, oh, well, you know, like I had to promise a couple of other girls in the team that, you know, like they, they really want to go to Norway. And I was like, well hang on, who who are these riders? Because Norway's a climbers tour and you've got one of your climbers in there and you've left two of your best, you know, your strongest climbers out. And I say, like, and you've put sprinters in there. And um yeah, he didn't like it, but he went away and did some rejagging and he put me back in the team, but he said, Oh, you are gonna have to prove yourself and I was just it was just it was it wasn't it was it was a rather unpleasant conversation. But what was interesting was that he he continued to keep one of our top sprinters in there. And I did warn him, I said, she's probably not going to finish this race and there's probably going to be tears. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, like we got to the end of the tour and it was not a happy team because people didn't, you know, like she she didn't realise what she was getting herself in for and he'd made a bad call. And it was a, just a classic example of a team not being managed properly in terms of people's strengths and making sure they go into the race with the right instructions and the right roles I
0: think women's cycling has seen a massive professionalization of it in the last couple of years so I would like to think that that's attracting higher quality talent in terms of director sportifs and tactical advisors and that's happening less and less
1: yeah and that's the thing like I was on the road from 2008 to 2017 and it was my last couple of years that I, I, I saw the biggest shift but you know, back in like 2008 through to like 2013, I I I have to say I, I saw some some terrible things. I mean, one team I I rode for in 2012 it was shut down by the French Cycling Federation at the end of the year because there were so many complaints.
0: Like, what are the nature of the complaints?
1: Um, there was prize money not being distributed out to riders. Um, it was being spent on other resources one race we had to find our own transport to get to um one of the spring classics and we were literally on facebook the night before riding shout-outs, and this was like a professional uci team it was it was appalling um uh, like we had mid season you know how mid season riders can do like a a swap over we had so many people on the team trying to jump ship it was um it was appalling
0: just to to shift gear slightly i want to talk about your transition from when you came to the end of your career because for a lot of athletes, especially in the increasing professionalism we've seen in cycling, male cycling for the last decades, you know, in the post-Armstrong era, but female cycling's playing catch-up in the last couple of years. But with that professionalism comes increased specialization. So rather than have a multifaceted skill set, like you were able to turn your hand to different jobs, like you mentioned the sales component from being a rickshaw driver, that leads itself to an easier transition post-athletic career when it's totally specialised and you only do one thing. The transition into life after cycling is a lot more daunting. Can you speak to your experience with that transition?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually really agree. I think that the more immersed you are, you know, like if you're, you know, maybe you've you've come through like even you know some of these national cycling federation Olympic academies, you know, when that dream or that goal is over. It can be a massive, massive crash for a lot of people mentally. I was definitely better equipped in that sense because I had always had to, um, you know, get creative, you know, like rickshaw or figure things out around it. But I know that because my cycling career didn't end on the note I'd hoped it was going to end on, I definitely went through a stage of quite, quite bad depression because it had ended, it hadn't ended how I'd hoped it would and I'd been Chipping away at a goal for a good decade, and I, was, I suppose I was lucky that I had these other skills that I could fall back on. So I went, basically went to Canada for a year and worked as a cycle coach over there, while also doing some like nannying, babysitting, and um, working as a supervisor in a cleaning uh, company. And I think the coaching over there really helped me kind of just move on. And I was meeting other people who'd. Race at that top level who had had to stop for whatever reason, and that that really really helps that challenging period.
0: How do you think cyclists can better leverage the skills they learn throughout their cycling career to help with that post career post cycling career placement?
1: I think they've got to treat it as kind of like life training because you're right. Like if you have got the motivation and the discipline to go out and do. You know, hours and hours of training on a bike, and you know, dedicate yourself to years on end. Those are actually incredibly transferable skills that you could take into a multitude of environments. Like you could take that into like an office job. You could take that into like um, higher education. You could take it into coaching. There's so many ways that it's transferable because right now with the, the climate out there and with what's happened with COVID, so many things are uncertain and they're talking about how people need to be tenacious. They need to be able to, um, you know, push through mentally when things are about hard. And I think that that's what, you know, a really long professional sports career gives people. It gives them a little bit of, well, not this little bit, it gives them a lot of tenacity to be able to overcome challenges.
0: I remember I went back uh, two years ago, three years ago. uh, I'm losing track of years with COVID uh, for the Tokyo Olympic cycle. A buddy of mine is visually impaired. And he asked me, would I come back on the front of the tandem? And, you know, ultimately we rode some world championships and were, you know, carded athletes inside Cycle and Ireland for that. And then the Olympics got deferred a year because of COVID and my buddy decided he didn't want to, he'd already been to a couple of games and he didn't want to hang on for the extra year. So we ended up packing it up. But what I was amazed by was the lack of support systems to facilitate that transition from high performance athletes into the real world. My experience with that, and, you know, it didn't affect me too much. Obviously, I've my law background, I had some companies run at that time. So it it wasn't like I was going into a spiral of depression, but it was the same system that was applied to me, was applied to somebody who'd been institutionalized within cycle learning for the last 10 years. It was literally the manager called up and said, uh, you know, that's the end of the road, I guess. See you around. And I was like, yeah, oh I'll see goodness. you around. And there was no transition, there was no, you know, media career guidance counselor, there was zero. And I can see how somebody would feel hopeless in that moment to think, what do I do now? I'm a passenger of no skills.
1: Yeah, it can be like a total loss of identity because if you've like only seen yourself as an athlete for a period of time and then say, you know, whatever thing you've been aiming towards, just it doesn't work out, or you get injured, or, or something happens, your circumstances change, and you literally cannot continue down that path. But that's all you've done. It's like, it's massive. It's like a, it's like a huge identity crisis. And yeah, I think that's what happened for me in 2018. I was just like, whoa, you know, like, you know, logically, I know I'm more than this, but the, the ego is just like, that's, that's all I've been doing. You know, I'm struggling with this. Um, and like, you know, uh, you know, you can no longer tell people, well, I'm a, I'm a professional cyclist or, you know, I, this is what I do. It's like, well, I'm, I'm now figuring out the next step.
0: And That's hard to say.
1: Yeah. And, and I think also too, you made a really good point that if you walk out of the sport and you don't have access to psychologists or, you know, a support network, um, you know that that in itself is even more challenging because you've got to talk about what you're going through. It's um, I think it's really underestimated actually the challenges that some people have when they transition away from being an athlete.
0: What do you hope your relationship will be like with the bike for the rest of your life?
1: Oh, I, to be honest, I think it'll be really good. Like I'm I'm in a I'm in a great place now. With um, I've been back in New Zealand. I've been able to reconnect with my family, and I've got you know my partner's very excited he's a surfer and so he's very excited to you know learn all about cycling and I I'm still riding I'm not I'm not racing but I wouldn't rule out maybe getting into racing you know a little bit later on down the track I don't know how seriously but I feel excited about it like I I I don't feel sad and uh, you know down about it anymore you know I've sort of grieved about my cycling career being over in one sense but yeah I just feel excited for where it's heading again.
0: Genevieve thank you very much for joining me on the Podcast.
1: Hey, thank you. It was really fun to be on here and um, super stoked to hear that you're a rickshaw. (laughs) Talks out. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about.